Hello, everybody. My name is Wojciech Węgrzyński. I'm a professor of fire science at ITB in Poland, and I'm super happy to welcome you to another Fire Science Show episode. We had a great streak of amazing episodes lately, and I hope today does not break that streak because I am interviewing two absolute stars of fire science. That is Professor Steve Green from Movement Strategies and Lund University and Dr. Mike Spearpoint, the research lead at OFR. And I'm going to talk with them about uh, industry-led research. I'm going to tell you a little more about the episode in a few moments, but I, I really can't wait to give you the big announcement of this year, the one that I was teasing in the previous episode. So it finally happened. For the year 2023, the Fire Science Show has partnered with OFR Consultants, who are now the diamond sponsor of the podcast. This is good news not only for me, but for everyone, because it will allow me to produce this podcast without any paywalls or limitations. Uh, in the high quality that you expect and with total creative freedom that I used to have. So I guess it's a win-win for everyone. I am also very happy that the partner of the podcast is, is actually Ofar, who is a company that has a great set of core values that are very close to my set of core values. Ofar was built by fire safety and risk engineers for the purpose of doing fire safety and risk engineering. So they're very focused and aligned with what we are talking about in the podcast. It's also a company that does a lot of research, but that, that's you're going to learn from the, today's episode. Uh, with OFR, we have a lot of things in common, and I am super happy to work with them to provide you this podcast as it was, or maybe even better, for at least one long year. So the show is not going anywhere. Uh, I don't want to ramble too much about the collaboration details and I will have a Q&A episode planned for later this week where I will be answering uh, the questions incoming and commenting the listener experience survey that uh, went out in December. I've gathered a lot of feedback and I would love to comment on that. And also it will give me a chance to talk about the OFR partnership and how it will unravel for the podcast, what does it mean for the podcast, what does it mean for the listeners. If you would like to know that, join me in the Q&A episode. Now back to the podcast episode. Mike Spearpoint and Steve Gwynn are sure are legends of fire safety. And they both come from very interesting backgrounds. Both of them have been academics. Both of them worked for governments or in some sort of governmental laboratories at some point of their careers. And now both of them are research leaders in large engineering companies. And that's, that's why I've invited them. Because when you look at the fire science landscape, it's obvious that companies do a lot of research, a lot of useful research, a lot of impactful research. And I would like to understand why. Like, why are they investing in science research? What are their KPIs? What they want to get back from that? And how it actually works, how it differs from academia. I think it's a very interesting thing to discuss, especially that the podcast is listened by a lot of young people who struggle with their life decisions, whether to go academia, whether to go industry. I, I can tell you both roads are great. And I, I hope this podcast episode will show you that the differences in some aspects are maybe less than you would think of. So uh, that was a very long intro. Uh, so let's not prolong this anymore. Let's spin the music and let's go with the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you in collaboration with OFR Consultants, a multi-award winning independent consultancy dedicated to addressing fire safety challenges. OFR is the UK's leading fire risk consultancy. Its globally established team has developed a reputation for preeminent fire engineering expertise with colleagues working across the world to help protect people, property and planet. In the UK, that includes the redevelopment of the Printworks building in Canada Water, one of the tallest residential buildings in Birmingham, as well as historic structures like the National Gallery, National History Museum and the National Portrait Gallery in London. Internationally, its work ranges from the Antarctic to the Atacama Desert in Chile and a number of projects across Africa. In 2023, OFR will grow its team and it's keen to hear from industry professionals who want to collaborate on fire safety futures this year. Get in touch at OFRconsultants.com. And now, back to the episode with Mike and Steve. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. I'm here today with two great experts 
Uh, first, Professor Steve Green from Movement Strategies and Lund University. Hi, Steve. Hello, how's it? I'm going great. Thank you, Steve. And Mike Spearpoint, Head of Research at OFR. Hey, Mike. Hi there. Nice to see you again. Yep. Happy to have you on one of the most requested comebacks to the podcast by the audience. Uh, that's a heavy burden, Mike. I, ho- I hope we can all carry that. <laughs> Guys, uh, th- that's an interesting topic proposed for the today's session, which is industry-led research. And point of this discussion is, I guess, to understand the role industry has in building up fire research, maybe even fire science. From the email exchange before the episode and the little discussion we just had, I I guess it's uh, nice to start with uh, the fact that we have research, science, and development, which are three things, but maybe uh, three different things. So maybe one of you would like to start on where's the research in the grand scheme of science. So I'll speak from the evacuation side of the equation, yep. right? The human behavior side of it, or the people movement side of it. I think because it's in, in comparison to our understanding and, and practice of, of fire science, it's a, it's a less mature field. Oftentimes, the practice of it in, in industry requires more dedicated research because there's less boilerplate out there in order just to do the thing in practice. So you end up doing quite a lot of background work even in those projects that are not dedicated research projects, but are a consultancy project, but actually it involves new thinking. So in my head, research in that context has value beyond the specific consultancy project on which you're working. And that may actually be a new method or actually going out and collecting new data. It may be applying it in a novel way. There's value beyond the lifetime of that project that might help others understand the problem or help someone within the company do the thing again, or indeed, more broadly, provide insights into how that should be done or might be done by other others in practice. So much like all research, it's meant to advance the field, but that field may be on multiple different pastures, I guess. But that doesn't mean that the, we're missing so many puzzles that it's necessity to do the work you're doing. Well, I think I think it's a slight misrepresentation, I think, to ever think that the field of knowledge is complete or stable. Okay. And think of what happened in pandemic, right? We thought we understood a lot of things and we certainly didn't. And we had to scramble to update that understanding. I think that's very much true in an area such as you know human behavior and fire, which is very sensitive to changes in design, to changes in technology, to changes in demographics. So you've got multiple different influences, very few of which are under your control but you are subject to their impact. And then you you have to understand the response. And this is both true of research and practice. There's a constant mm-hmm. need to update your understanding. And that inevitably requires someone to go out and do the dating. And that could be a dedicated researcher or someone engaged in a research task. I'm not suggesting for one second, it doesn't also exist on the other side of the equation. But I think there's a bigger pile of 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 practical processes mm. and uh, that, that have been applied over a longer period. Yeah. Well, I think Steve brings up some some interesting points there. And now I'm going to dive into my <laughs> amateur philosophy here. Well, you know, the idea of knowledge and what we know, I, I might drift off to what, what we might call the Donald Rumsfeld model. But we've got this sort of thing that Steve brings up here. Where it's kind of like there's an understanding of what we might call the fundamental mechanism of the universe, chemistry, physics, or whatever. And we, we know we don't know everything about it. Maybe there's a possibility that one day we might know everything about it. And the, but they, from my understanding, they're kind of fixed, right? Whereas there's the sort of things that Steve's talking about, which you might call this, this research around society. But society is changing. Right. So, you know, the way we, we live now is different to previous generations. So the way that people organize themselves, the way that we have our sort of um, acceptable levels of risk and all sorts of things. So there's a kind of ongoing research there. That's a sort of societal work. And I'm, talk, I'm thinking about, for example, bringing up some research that myself and Steve and you've had Anne Templeton on before. Well, Anne's part of that work has been looking at things like how much people trust current guidance in terms of fire safety. Well, that's a societal question because that's a moving target as people are exposed to new events and their behavior change and family structures change and their demographics change. Those things are never kind of fixed in the same way that we might understand 
chemical reactions are sort of fit. So, yeah. so there's quite different types of research in terms of those, those sort of that spectrum. When Steve brought this, this topic, my immediate thought was that that's interesting to talk industry-led research because in fire science, I think when I look over the last years, the best papers I've read, a lot of them were industry-led, like it was literally coming from companies. So many interesting uh, projects, developments that were carried by literally commercial companies And I don't necessarily see a very direct link between research and revenue, you know, for a commercial company. I would expect it's like when a company does something, they would do it for revenue uh, because it, it increases their commercial viability. But I, I see that's not the case in, in a fire science. And it really intrigues me because, you know, I'm coming from a cultural uh, circle where the scientist is the one and, and at the top of the mountain and they give you the knowledge and you are very welcome to apply that. But having the idea that a company, a privately owned company that is in essence maybe driven by profit would do uh, scientific fundamental research, it, it, it's not something uh, very obvious to me. And yet in fire science, as I venture outside of my cultural circle, I see that a lot and it's a model that, that's really working. Do you think we all, irrespective of where you are, you are working with a specific currency, right? And in academia, that currency could be publications. I'm simplifying, but you yeah. Know, and in industry, currency maybe in, involves several different examples. So it could be publishing maybe uh, another currency. I'm certainly encouraged to publish. A, to, to make sure we share the insights provided to demonstrate competency and, and subject matter expertise, and also to try and shape the area in which we work, right? I mean, part of what we do actually in practice is in some ways to influence the next generation of, of work, be that through the research that we do or through the practice that we do. Uh, you mentioned about why, why would an industry want to do it? Well, I think what has evolved over the last 20, 30 years is that the idea that research is only done in one place, I think is, has, has evolved somewhat. And I think what's There is a natural home for it in academia because of the currency, because of the currency of publications and, and student development and so on. Um, industry has access to different types of resources maybe that academia doesn't. It has an access to ongoing real-world problems okay. that it has to address. So one of the classics at the moment, I guess, is access to large pots of what they call them, data reservoirs that companies collect that industry might interact with on a more regular basis that the research in an emic environment might not have access to. Mm. I'm not saying it shouldn't have access to it. I'm saying it's just less, less direct. And so that's why oftentimes an industrial partner is so welcome into a, a research project because it, it provides that bridge to the ongoing application of, of expertise and practice. I also think, and then I'll pass over, I do think that And I'd say it's very unusual to have three people in a discussion that have or are working in government, industry, and, and academia, at, at, you know, or at some point in their career. A mix of careers. them all, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think in my head, I see them moving at different speeds. Typically, and I, I say I'm simplifying, industry deals with it, the, the shorter term or can deal with the shorter term. <laughs> Then you have academia, which is trying to say, what do we know about That, that thing. And then government, which is how do we use that at the longer, in the longer frame, time frame. Historically, academia was the one that was responsible for shaping the new knowledge. I, I just think those lines are much more blurred now. I, I, absolutely. They, they blurred a lot. And when I see direct gain in this short-term research that, you, that you've mentioned, like direct answers for questions maybe, but also see a lot of fundamental research that may not lead to a direct breakthrough, direct discovery, not, not something you can build commerce on for sure. So, so it's also some sort of this higher motivation, which I would expect from academia, not from a company. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of take that thing that Steve talked about, the blurring of the lines and how long that's been going. It, it might be hard to judge. And I, again, when we were kind of preparing for this discussion, but we're kind of sort of talk, touch, touched on this. But in the end, when you look at, there's not this simple 
delineation between industry research and academic research because there's people in industry who interact with academia. They co-supervise students and, and partner with universities. They might be, I mean, I know Steve's a professor at London University. So, so there's interaction that way. And of course, there's interaction the other way. But people in academia may be contracted to provide advice to industry. So there's that there's synergy there. Some academics will end up developing a product that might be span off by a university and still have a, be a stakeholder in that product development. So there's this kind of, you know, some people think this idea there's just sort of academic research and industry research, but there's a much more melting pot of people who are interacting across those, you can call it a boundary, but it isn't really a boundary. It's a, it's a continuum of those two. I suppose at two extremes, you might think of one end, industry research being very sort of utilitarian. It's solving a problem for today that needs to be solved. And the other end of the spectrum is kind of the academic side is research is not there to, for any utility. It's, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's useful or not. It's part of civilization is to, and humankind is to do these sort of thinking. And it doesn't matter what the value is. But again, I think there's, again, quite a wide continuum to solving tomorrow, today's problem to not solving a problem ever at all. Somewhere in between, there's a, there's a lot of in between there. Do you think, sorry, I think it's an important point is if you think of fire safety or fire science or fire engineering, it's a, all of these things are, unless you're working at the extreme limits of fire science, one end, it's a pretty applied area. Like where, the journey between us and engineering is much shorter than it might be in some of the more pure mathematics or particle physics. Yeah, yeah, whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so that distinction, as Mike said, is it's much grayer than it might otherwise be. I also think as well, don't forget that many universities actively consult. So there are many research departments that supplement their income through doing either model development or supporting a consultancy or doing spin-outs. So it's not just a, a land grab of industry trying to hoover up or grab grab research. I can't think of a project where I've been, in, been involved in where there was universities, industry, and government presence that would have benefited by only being one of those. I, I would consider myself in this role as well as a research institute that does actively consult being underneath the government's wing, having a certified fire laboratory, having a consultancy practice, and being a scientist at the same time where I have to publish papers, do fundamental research. I often also take this chance to do selfish research. I, I think I've said it many times on the on the podcast that I, I try to research things that are very relevant to my practical work. And I highly appreciate actually the capability to have a real world uh, problems at hand. I see that, especially when reviewing papers, many researchers over deliver on the promise, like this paper will serve either fire investigators in this way, or this will change the way yeah. how we detect fires in buildings. <laughs> oh, Boy, no, it, it will not. I mean, it's an interesting concept, but it's it, concepts we have a lot, no, it, solutions is that we lack. You, you think this having this exposure to real-world problems is something that anchors this science to the realm of usability? I think, I think well, first of all, humility is a great thing. I think uh, overreaching is one of the more dangerous traits a researcher or a practitioner can have. Mm -hmm. I think... The goal is often subtly different as someone whose role has been to try and develop a research capability and bring in researchers. The natural instinct of a researcher is to keep pushing, to keep going in a certain direction until they've gone as far as they can. And within the lifetime of a project, they may not have that scope. And that is a limiting factor in industry, whereas you have a clearer deliverable that has to be met. Now, that doesn't mean you compromise the message. Mm. It means you target that particular problem, but then you may continue beyond it and publish the broader work or public, you know, and, and produce something that's genuinely novel in the field. But there's a twin track of doing what needs to be done for the thing in front of you so that it's good enough. And then answering the broader research question, which may require future or more broader thinking or future work. And then actually into a policy or regulatory structure, which is almost bringing it, reining it back in and saying, well, okay, this is what we know is going to happen. Well, what can we really expect to influence on a broader scale? So there's that sort of tug of war going on, I think, in terms of expectations. And But what you can't do is compromise the message. Mm -hmm. You can't change your subject matter 
slash expert opinion to suit a particular client. You just make sure that the message is understood in the context of the project and it's suitable for the, the scenarios you're looking at. I guess that's a slightly different question. Yeah. Mike, is it any hard to, to uh, keep this integrity? <laughs> I don't think so. No, I don't. I, I don't think so. It's important, but it's important to keep it. And if you want to keep it, you will keep it. Uh, and that, I think I think it's a personal thing. Right? It's as much yeah, as yeah. about hiring the right people and, <laughs> and, and having oversight. And also, I think as well, like it goes back to that currency thing, right? The currency of publications and the currency of quality of work. That work is really scrutinized in, in an industrial environment. It's not just pushed out the door. The reputation of a, an engineering company that has a science background and that is producing intelligence in one form or another. If you, if you're caught sort of, um, cooking the books or taking shortcuts, that is a quick track to undermining your reputation and. As, as corporates would call it, their branding. Do you know what I mean their brand? If if you don't want to be caught doing that, because those shortcuts cost you a lot of a lot of money and potentially existent. If you mm. if you can't be trusted and you don't have processes in place, just as academics institutions have put those processes of oversight and ethics equivalent, we may call them different things, but we we certainly have oversight and we certainly even refer to those type of ethics requirements as and when they're appropriate. In, from, from other external organizations. I mean, as I was saying before we started the conversation, I mean, I, I happened to be doing a little talk on ethics last week at a, a university. But of course, all of us are engineers. And when you're a chartered engineer, you're all signing up to a, an ethical framework. So in my case, the Engineering Council and then through the Institute of Fire Engineers. So those, and those ethics are, um, like Steve says, they're similar or if not the same for academia. But it, and it all kind of stems, you know, might say, from your personal. I mean, obviously, you've got, you've got your employer, your industry, that the ethical standards to meet there. But then, of course, there's, you've got your own ethical uh, standard. And part of that discussion I was having last week was some of these things, are, you know, some of these questions can get quite tricky in terms of what might be seen as right and wrong. And again, I dare not delve too much into my amateur philosophy i've got a whole <laughs> morality to read that's just i've just bought so and I'll, I'll come back to that and another one of um, called ethics in construction which i need to read so um, that's another day's reading well, I, do, I do think though mike there is a, on a more basic level if you what, whatever we do whether it's in in research supporting a project or even a, a dedicated research project in and of itself the outcome that's going to be produced is undoubtedly imperfect partial and potentially incorrect at some point as, as assessed in the future. Most, if not all, scientific understanding will be overthrown in some form or another. And especially in, in engineering and, and in, in, in engineering research or practice, it will be supplanted by some better approach and supplanted by more appropriate data. So that humility that you need going in and the, the associated skepticism that you must have to question the validity of what you're doing, and that validity can get into ethics and it can get into process and it can get into presentation and sharing as much of the background information as you can and that sort of transparency. And you mentioned it earlier, Wojciech, about reviewing articles. You know, if you've got the sufficiently seasoned eye, you know where people are not being sufficiently transparent. You know where people are not unmasking something because they're somewhat tentative about sharing a detail. But I think it's just better to acknowledge right up front, like this is, everything could have been done better if you'd have started it at the end of the project. Yes. When conceptualizing this talk, I had this immediate example of where the industry-led research could go rogue. And there is a case when someone would be researching a feature of their product and by this research they discover it doesn't work like as, as expected. And uh, I guess this be a place for, for the most difficult uh, choices to be done. Like, do we stuff this into a closet and and, and never uh, surface this research? But uh, these, these things also have a history of backfiring, like what you said, Steve, about the reputation gains. And I, I for a long time, I, I thought this this is an industry. This is a very specific industry problem. But then I came to realization that, and, and now I, I'm going amateur philosophy, Mike. <laughs> Many researchers would invest their lifetimes in their theories, and they would be very defendant of the theory, even when faced with the, the uh, proof that it's different. Like you, Steve, said, it, 
and inevitably it will be superseded by something better, either a different concept, either a more precise definition, either by realization that there are more variables into the equation that completely change the outcome. It will be superseded, and, and this superstition, this process is very difficult. And here again, you may be a scientist in an ivory tower and find something that contradicts lifetime of your discovery, and you would be confronted with the exact same problem as an industrial. For some reason, I felt that industrial, it's it's like more obvious or more easy. But now, now, now I see the academic would would uh, have the same problem, right? Unless you're we were at this view of like, there was this, I don't know, like in the Victorian era in the UK, there were these like gentlemen scientists self-funded who were working out of their shed in their garden and they just came up with these stunning hmm. findings. Unless you are a modern equivalent to that or an absolute genius, you probably work in a department. You probably have to get funding and you probably do align the broad path of your research with that. So the idea that you have carte blanche over what you look at and how you look at it in academia is somewhat partial, I think. It's, very, it's, it's do unusual. You, do you actually do that? Yeah, I mean, very few people, I think, have complete independence. In addition, I think there's a broader discussion, and we go back to the currency of publication, as, as how much of public... Do people publish all their results? Yeah. So you publish your failures. Do you publish where P isn't significant or whatever it is? Do you, where, do you publish... And that may be unbelievably important that something doesn't work or that is, it isn't important or, or that it, a classic in fire, that it was a near miss, that it wasn't an actual fire that, that, that caused lots of life or huge damage. And so it might not appear on the radar as much, but there might be enormous lessons that we might learn from that potentially less significant or less dramatic or less complex incident. So I do the idea that there's this area where there's a purity and then there's this horrendously corrupt, uh, so evil twin, uh, I think is again <laughs> a little bit complicated, a little bit simplifying the distinction. I, again, I think it comes down to a lot of it comes down to transparency. And it, by the way, there's plenty of research in all across all of the various uh, domains that, that isn't quickly published because of various restrictions. And that can be in academia or industry. I mean, obviously, the goal is to publish as much as you can, especially where it's you can generalize from the specific project. I think that's the, the biggest value. But then assuming that imperfection and assuming that it will be supplanted by something else, I think that's just good humility and, 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 and transparency is part of that process, I think, because it allows you to be further scrutinized. Talking about the currency, what is the value of publication for you? Like for me, it's, it's very simple as an academic impact factor, or it's uh, we have a points in Poland that are, there's a list of 50,000 journals and yeah. each has assigned a point value. So we joked that we gathered the points and we turned them into hot dogs in a petrol station from a cart. What's the, like, like Mike, if you publish so far, what, what are you looking for? Are, are you, are you looking for impact factors? Are you looking for another metric? Are you looking for accessibility, reputation, prestige? Yeah, it's a good question, and I, and and again, there's been a bit I happened to you on the editorial board of Journal of Fire Sciences, and there has been a few emails between the editors, which I, I half drafted and never sent it back. But this discussion went has been gone on there, and certainly you're saying within academic in ad, administration, and I don't necessarily mean the universities, but sometimes it's governments now. They they, they want to come up with a ranking system so you can compare one department or one university with another. And, they, and somewhere we've decided, or it has been decided, that impact factors is somehow some kind of measure of quality and whatever. And, you know, and I think a lot of us recognize, both in industry and in academia, that this has fairly limited applicability, but it, it's, you know, it's nice to get a, a scoring system because, it, you know, you can rank A, a above B and so on. And certainly then for, for industry, I mean, well, and I'm sure Steve would have a similar feeling, but impact, because we don't have in industry have that scoring system, then impact factor on a journal doesn't matter. I'm not sure it's ever mattered to me, the impact mm. factor of a journal. I mean, for me, the choice of journal is partly, you know, there's a whole bunch of factors that you might weigh. And it, and it might be the audience you expect it to go to. It will be the perceived quality of that journal. And it might be the speed of publication, 
it might be the fact that they might have open access. So in some cases, you know, if you're if you're working for an industry and they want that information fairly quickly published, then an open access journal might be, or, or an open access pathway in that journal might be seen as more valuable uh, than some of these other factors. I mean, again, from in, from industry, concept of impact factor for some people probably is not something they've ever they've ever heard of, and and it bothers them. So the choice of journal has all of these sorts of elements that, that go into it. That maybe I can come up with a scoring system for why choose a certain journal. Dare I be back perverse to come up with a scoring system of why to choose a certain journal in a certain situation or weightings on all these factors. And, to, and give each each journal or each uh, paper a score on why I chose it. Well, that would be. And put it in a high impact factor journal just just to close the loop. Um, so the choice the choice is not. Uh, I, I don't think it's a simple one. And if someone said to me, "Why did I choose that paper to go in that journal?" I mean, some days it it is simple as that. As that I've sent three papers to journal A. Maybe it's time I sent it to journal B. I mean, it might just sharing it around type of thing, which maybe some might look at and say, that's a really poor decision-making, right? But, but if, you, if you had to make a choice, like uh, you're, you're the research leader in your company, so I guess you have some say in, in where the people go, or at, at least you, you, you advise them. If you had in one hand, like let's say Fire Technology or Fire Safety Journal, on another hand, let's say some IEEE informatics conference, which may in the end have higher impact factor, but will not reach your Fire audience, would it it matters for you that that you publish in the place where your industry reads, not necessarily just the metrics that represents the vehicle where you publish it, right? I think that I think that's changed a lot with yeah. social media. First of all, I mean, I think Mike and I are both in pretty privileged positions in that we I think we're both encouraged to publish by the companies, and that's because they didn't hire researchers as lip service. They actually wanted an ongoing research capability, and that. Part of this is demonstrating that, right? So there's value to the company in publishing because it shows they're actively engaged in this type of thing and this type of thinking, and they have in-house capabilities. In terms of where this is the problem with those impact factors, right? Is is it, I wonder how accurate they are now in a lot of ways because how do they capture the actual reading of the documents and the actual influence? I've never paid, got to be honest, a blind bit of notice to the impact factor. I'm more interested in the authors that I'm publishing with. I mean, I'm a much a social butterfly when it comes to that. I want to, I want to collaborate. So I like to be working. I don't care what, where I'm in the author list. I don't, I'd rather, as long as, as long as I'm contributing something and there's five or six people on the paper that, you know, I got to learn something from and that, that's great. And then the company benefits because they contributed to the work and their staff are seen to be contributing to it and they've advanced the field. And if you're in our game, there's great value in showing that you're. You know, it's another way of gently nudging both the understanding of the field and the way that the thing is done, right? So you're you're advancing innovation in that way. So I think there's personal preferences. As I said, I look at the co-authors more than the person you know, publishing it. But the, the organization, I think, benefits from enhancing that reputation of new thinking and, and knowledge generation. Also, that those, also they have those connections as well. So rather than the people, the authors, the institutions to which those authors belong, there's, I think there's increasing value in having building those bridges between different organizations and you know, showing that you're active on those research projects. The notion that there's journals that the industry reads, and again, I think Steve's mentioned that with social media and, and also the internet. Um, I was kind of looking at this just for this uh, other discussion. I don't, I don't have a kind of reading lists of journals like I mm. you know, might have done in the old days, were called printed and sent to me or whatever. It'd be really interesting to sit down and look at all of the journals that I've cited and what and where they come from. And some of them will come from the main, what you might call the mainstream fire science, so fire safety journal, fire technology, and those fire materials. Uh, some will come from the built environment, so you know a wider that. But I've got, pay, you know. Given I've dabbled in in too many subjects, and maybe I'm as you know guilty as the as the next person about not sticking to my knitting. I mean, I've got you know I've looked at papers in stuff on occupant loads, ending up looking at papers on retail re- consumer research, and the stuff I did on 
kitchen oil fires. I looked at papers to do with how many people dispose of their kitchen oil down their sink type of thing. So these are all way outside of fire science stuff because they just happen to be what I was looking at. So, so this notion that there's some journals that people read and others they don't, I think has disappeared because the internet and Google Scholar and all that sort of things means you just, you just search yeah. and you've, and you find where you find it and you make a judgment. And again, there's this idea about quality of the journal of that, you know, and I don't know. I think a, a reasonable researcher can look at a paper and make a decision about the quality of the paper and so and so. Kind of, you was going to say independent of where it was published. I'm being a bit careful about that because maybe that's not. That, I think, Mike, I think, and it, the reason I've mentioned this is because it's come up recently in, in some work I've been doing is. If all you did was search academic journals, if you were doing some search for information, you'd miss out, especially in our field, all of the work that NIST did, a lot of the reports mm. that NRC did. Yeah. All of the government publications wouldn't necessarily appear in that. There's lots of industry reports that wouldn't appear. There's lots of, I mean, some of the blogs that are on LinkedIn now, or some of the, the, the pieces are actually well-referenced and well-documented. And there's some, it's a way of getting content out there now quite quickly, the problem with the journal publication process is it can take a long time, it's, like a really long time. True, yeah. Mike, Mike also mentioned that uh, the speed of publication would be yeah. one of, of the factors. I'm asking about this um, way, like if I receive a research grant as an academic, I have to point out some milestones and, and some outcomes of this. And these outcomes are usually the easiest way to define it is I either train a PhD student I, I've promoted someone and uh, that there's a growth of their career that's measurable by them obtaining PhD, or I've published something which has a certain value of him. Like these are simple, easy metrics like that are very measurable, very identifiable, very obvious. Like you have a publication, it's a publication. There's no gray zone in that. You, did you make an impact on the industry? Hmm, that's, that's a gray zone. So I wonder, like doing industry-led research, like what, indicators would be there that did you've actually achieved that if, if paper on its own is not the achievement of, of it yeah well, it's, it's an interesting one as i said before not all not all of any research is done can be published there's there's always bits that are more sensitive or for, for various reasons can't be published but assuming you can publish it to me the ultimate impact of industrial work again industrial research beyond the lifetime of a project is to get into the regulatory or guidance space, right? Because that means that you've generated something that is sufficient to have an impact on the broader practice beyond your organization. So just as, and it's absolutely pragmatic, right? It's absolutely applied, but it's one line in the building code can have a much bigger impact than 10 articles mm. that no one reads, where someone's got to use that one line or providing a material base for the development of regulations. To me, that that's always, if you think of it as like you've got subject matter experts who are engaged in this or and, and or research, and what they're all trying to do in one way or another is either do something to such a high level that they're noticed for doing it in a new way that's advanced the field of practice, or they're doing it in research where they've expanded the understanding and or the area of knowledge that, that then bleeds into the field of practice. Eventually, someone is going to develop a guide to say, well, this is how you do that. This is how it should be done based on that new practice or new research. And, and then eventually, of course, beyond that, it's okay, this is how it must be done. So to me, that's the a signal that you've, your novel work inside of your practice is having a broader influence beyond the day-to-day -day or beyond the life of a project. So and in, it's where you're shaping the space. To get the phrase out of my mouth, like shaping the environment, like you really did change the landscape in which you business. Mike, for your company, you, you're seeking the same. I mean, you're in a very interesting position because I know OFR is carrying a lot of government, like where the, the government is directly your consumer and they give you, they, they tell you what research to do. Yeah, so we've got some government funded research and, and one of those projects I'm doing jointly with Steve, it's one of the ones I, I mentioned. And so they've got certain goals for doing that research. And I, and I suppose when I worked my first job, um, when I worked at 
by a research station, BRE. I mean, obviously there, some of that money came from government departments. I mean, can think of one where we were asked to look at a piece of, um, there were two different standards for smoke detectors, for commercial ones and for domestic. And part of the work was, should there be one standard for this? You know, so it would have had an impact on the types of, on the testing of those devices, which, which, you know, was sponsored, as I remember, by the government department, because obviously that had a, a societal impact on whether, whether that standard be, be changed or not. Well, I mean, from a, shall I get, on a personal point of view, I remember having a discussion not that long ago with one of my colleagues about how much my research that I've been involved with has had an impact. And I, and I kind of struggled. I, I don't know if it's had any impact at all. Uh, <laughs> but what is that impact? Some Someone might say, well, if you could demonstrate that all your researchers, as we might say, sort of saved a life, then you kind of think it's all worth it. It's really hard. Um, so it's really difficult because I, I was saying to this colleague, I was saying, well, maybe sometimes I think, well, none, none of it's made any difference. But then, then this colleague sort of said, well, it may have made a difference. It may have influenced people to get into fire research or, yep. or influence <laughs> and get involved with something. And I go, well, yeah, I, goes, I guess that's an impact in a way that someone's read something of mine and they thought that's useful or it was a, completely wrong way to do it and the better way was to do it another way um, as Steve said some researchers might point to a, a better method and so that influences kind of said someone don't do it Mike's way because yeah. that's a rubbish way well I, that, I was, that's what I was going to say is, is I've, I, I've had the other experience where I've just had someone randomly come up to me at a conference and start arguing with me like unmeeting me because of a paper that Mike and I worked on many years ago on, on model defaults and, and they were fairly furious at the, what we just spoke. <laughs> and so it definitely influenced their next paper because I think they were quite critical of what we'd written. But so, no, I, I, the thing is, you don't know. You don't know what the impact is, right? And that's not, I'm not that prolific, but it's like you see, I've seen quotes from the most obscure paper that I ever wrote or whatever, and they're, they're holding it as like a bit of evidence that they're going to use to contribute for their work. And it's like, it was a Korean researcher and they spoke to me at a conference. So that, that was really useful for me because it meant, I, not that it was anything profound, but it just meant they, that was a little stepping stone that led them to something else. And I'd included stuff in my reference list. So you never know where it becomes useful. I would say going back to usefulness and I think the reason for doing stuff as well. Oftentimes, again, I, I do think the assumption is slightly naive that you know, if you're in one space, like an academic space, you have control over what you're doing. You have much more purity in selecting what you look at. And we all need funding. And that funding comes from a body. And that body has decided that something is important and needs to be looked at. And that is usually determined by a com combination of stakeholders, government, industry, yes, advocacy groups, whatever it is. And we were very much subject to that when I was in working in government. To me, a classic example, maybe it's unique, but it makes the point, is what happened during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone suddenly had to turn left and do things in that. Well, not everyone, but many of us would said, okay, you're going to stop looking at that thing and you're going to turn left and work out why social distancing matters or what impact that might have. And so basically all of the machinery that was normally focused on these, this unbelievably complicated and addressing all these different topics just went, Everyone's going to look in that direction because it basically shuts society down. And so it was an example. The reason I mention it is because an example of the fact that we often we're quite reactive to needs in that the either industry has to address on a project by project basis or research addresses given the funding that's available. It's quite rare, I think, that someone genuinely stands up and says, I've got this idea that's so important. I want a dedicated bit of funding for it. It's typically much more influenced by what's going on and it, or or you know not necessarily at that moment but over a period of time if if someone from inside your company came to you and said steve i have this idea it's not something we can immediately employ but i think it's it could be eventually important i don't know i need to research that they, they literally do that would you go for that well that's literally an ongoing process right so to me there's different types of research projects there's like a research offer, we do research for external entities and we deliver research outcome. So that's, that's one type of project. And then there's, there are relatively complex people movement projects where we, it requires 
us to do research in order to facilitate those projects to be delivered for an external stadium or an event or something like that. Um, But then there are other things that come up as part of that where an internal consultant uh, might say, look, I've come up with these ideas that might be using developing a tool that's being developed in a new way or being used in a new way or is giving insights in a new way. I'm not sure I've seen this before. A, is it genuine research that we could enhance or develop as part of the company or might it even be a value beyond that and, the, and then we would take it outside if there's if it warrants it so that sort of discussion is sort of i mean i'm, I'm sure it's similar to my it's, it's, it's a sort of our bread and butter it's, it's actually what it is and it but and by the way the, and this is another misnomer before i buy yeah. as a show i'm never ever ever the smartest person in the room the idea that because you've got a PhD, inevitably means your IQ is higher than the consultants in the room. It just means you've been doing something long enough to develop a, a sufficient insight into that one thing. Let's throw that out the window. You know, that, that, you, that Again, it comes back to humility, right? I've been shouted at enough at conferences by smarter people than me to know that I'm limited. But the idea that consultants or practice or industry isn't just chock full of super smart, hardworking people who... You know, I'm not always motivated purely by like finance. Uh, is it's not true. And how would you rank the ability to pursue science at industry? Like, to what extent it's different from academia? Like, both have been uh, previously employed in in some sort of uh, laboratories. Academia. Steve, you are now in Lund. Mike, you were at Christchurch. Is there an, a very like direct difference between how you did research as a researcher in the university versus how you do it in your company now. What, what do you mean by science? I'm not sure. Research. Not sure. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, I'm not sure whether I've ever done science. I'm, I'm using research and science almost uh, as a synonymous. It's, it's hard to even define what science is. I, I guess there's the increase of the knowledge of the humanity and, and, uh, everything that that goes towards this this goal but yeah, i think uh, that's more research because you can do research without necessarily strictly following the scientific method i'm guessing but i mean let's uh, yeah. not let's not, not get into that because that is a ah. there's three other conversations <laughs> that's <laughs> okay mike anyway you were you were you were talking but the capability of doing research as as a researcher do you, do you see like any significant differences like uh, i don't know it was easier it was harder Okay, it's different, right? So you've yeah. got different you've got different drivers. So, for example, you've got the driver of, of a university wanting publications and reputation mm. and those sorts of things. So that you know that Canterbury, uh, they have the the assessment system. I can't remember what it's called now, but the, the, mm. here in the UK, I think it's the RAE thing. So you've got your scoring, and of course, there's a, a metric, a KPI, whatever. So you're you are somewhat driven by that. Um, obviously, you've got students. And you're driven by their interests, and mm-hmm. their capabilities, and that sort of thing. So sometimes, like you're directed because of those, and you and there's resources as well. So I was very we're very fortunate to have laboratory facilities at University of Canterbury, which have expanded since I left. Mm-hmm. I had a, a couple of really good technicians who I could go and chat to and build a build a widget, and we had a lab, and we and we do things which I I can't do now. I've got no lab and that. So was it easier before or, or it's different? You know, when I was doing my master's at Maryland, the way of engaging technicians to build things was different. They had, a, as I recall, a more central resource. So, so it was slightly more complicated, one might say, to get something built there because you had to go to the central resource rather than having someone you could just go and walk down the, to the lab and say, can you build me a so-and-so? And they'd go, yeah, weld it like this and I'll get it for you to done. Uh, tomorrow, if you need tomorrow, and go well. Next week's great. So I can't say what was easier or, or harder mm-hmm. because it it depends. It, it's it's different. Yeah, but the differences can be quite subtle, right? And very much sensitive to where you are. I think mm-hmm. some academic spaces could be extremely hierarchical, and your direction is governed by the the group or the the department or the you know the the focus of the subject matter focus, and of course the availability of funding. So in government, it was more like someone comes in with a problem. Someone from the public comes in with a problem that then determines whether your unit has to provide some evidence and generate some research to work out what's going on. So that was quite reactive, I think. Lots of resources, labs, and access. 
access to lots of building facilities that we would never have had access to. In industry, I think the great resource we've got is just a lot of people that can do the thing. So there's a lot of consultants, practitioners who are not, this is by no means a criticism, they're not new students coming through. They're practiced in the field. And so where the where there's value to the old researcher, I include all Mike and myself in that, is, is <laughs> that they become unbelievably useful resources. So they are and, and willing resources who know the they know enough about practice to know what how the data that you're collecting might be used. And so of course you still have to have that research overview and you still have to have a structure and methodology. That, that can be attacked academic and in peer review, but they then become a huge resource in actually doing the research activity. And so I think that's what's astonished me. And again, we, we were involved in the, the pandemic work and we deployed tens of people into the field, dozens of people into the field that would have been very tricky if it had just been a university doing it. We just wouldn't have had the numbers of people capable of doing that. So there are very few departments that large, you know, that you could just manifest mm. 10, 20 people to go into the field and do a, an observations. I think it's complicated. I don't think it's necessarily different in one particular way. I think it's very much sensitive to the institution, the academic institution and the and industrial institution, the government space you're working in. As I say, I think the main difference is often the speed of delivery, speed of turnaround and the, the resources available do that. I don't know if that's constant between the three uh, domains, if you like. I think it's a very interesting discussion, and it's clearly showing, like to anyone wondering if uh, if you go to to industry, you will be thrown on on endless loop of similar commercial projects endlessly. There, there, there's also a pathway in industry where you can do interesting research, maybe yeah, maybe the most interesting research, and and focus on the meaningful aspects of that research rather than struggling on which journal to choose or which impact factor metric you, you have to achieve. That's a, trap. That's a trap in academia. Sometimes people also like they would uh, have this view that academia is ultimately good or, or a beautiful, fantastic place where you do research, uh, enjoying yourself, smiling in the lab. Well, there, there's like, there's a reason why 70% of postdocs have a depression and well, can be not a very collegiate place, right? Because it's very competitive. The idea that academia is not competitive, I think, is there's long, long gone. I think. I do think the downside on a if you're if you're a careerist, if you're really interested in climbing the ladder, operating in more than one space can certainly mean that you don't focus on those metrics within a space that really matter. Mm. And so, you know, if you want to get on in certain universities, then you have to hit certain publications, and you have to. Mm. You know, you have to really focus in on on those things, and being more of a generalist in terms of the domains in which you work means you just don't focus on that. You're, you're looking at multiple impacts across domains, and so you're never going to be as successful necessarily by this metric. Right, metric. That's right. You're 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 you've got like a, a seven out of ten across three different metrics rather than a ten out of ten on one, and so. You have to be able to swallow that a little bit. That the, the people will race past you in one area. You know, there were people that were colleagues of mine that have just gone way beyond me in mm. up the academic scale, or indeed way beyond me in the in the industrial hierarchy. Um, that's just how it is. <laughs> that's just that's just the nature of it. And they they were better than me anyway. But that's not the point. Is if I was equivalent to them, I wouldn't have gone so far. If because of the path, the, the, the more complicated path. Of, of being one thing inside another thing. From my, my side, I wanted to do this episode to see how the other ladder looks like. I, I know how the ladder of career in academia looks like. I, I think I understand how the research is, is done in here. And then I see people from this other ladder from industry making true impact, making research that's, that's groundbreaking. I wanted to, to understand why they would be making it and why it is very attractive for industry to put own money on the table and, and do research. And, and I also think it's fundamental for the growth of this discipline for multiple reasons. One, the, the funding. Two, shaping the environment and, and knowing the problems. Three, having access to this, what you just said, Steve, the, the amount of people, the, the tools, being able to focus your efforts, change your goals as you grow. I, I guess you also have 
bigger uh, ability to do that when you're driving your own research. So yeah, it's 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 been a very interesting discussion. Well, I'm constantly embarrassed by how good and how hardworking my colleagues are. Like, there's no sense of I'll come up with something in a discussion, and I'll say, "Oh, this tool would be useful," or this bit of work, and one of my colleagues will just have done it because it's they're in industrial part consultants, so they and they'll have done it because it's something of interest to them. The idea that, and you know, this is in an engineering environment, of course. But they're, they're, they, they're interested in the thing. They want to do it. It's not just about getting on and some sort of rat race style. I think they actually want to, they're as interested in the topic as I am. And they just happen to be 28 and able to work all of the current tools that are available and willing to dive in and do the thing. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have to be careful what I say because it will be, Someone will pick it up and run with it. So <laughs> it will be used against you for sure. Opposite problem. Yeah, exactly. But then, yeah, I think it's interesting. There's very dissensus for all the game, this sort of utilitarianism. The people, people do it because they, because they're told to do it and they're paid to do it. And that's the only reason they do it. But people do all sorts of things. All the stuff that people work in open source software and, and they do it as a hobby and they do it as, because people are quite interested in it. And as long as they do it is because it in, intellectually engages them and they're interested and, and all those things. And some might say, what do I do research? And why did, and for me, it's part of it is to do with that intellectual engagement. And I think Steve's already talked about the fact that you can work with other people and share that research pathway. I mean, do it, doing it sometimes by yourself is not, is not that interesting because mm. it's just when you've got someone else to bounce ideas off and, and discuss it and they, you know, they'll challenge you or whatever. That in itself can be a reason to do it because it engages something in you that, that, that you want to engage in. And not, I, no, I'm not going to get into it. You know, what, why one does fire research? And is it just the process of research rather than the particular topic? And for some people, it might be the topic of, is of interest. Some people, it's just the, the intellectual engagement in something, irrespective of what the, the, the topic is. But I think there's all sorts of things that, that, that people do things and yeah, they need to, you know, earn money and, and pay a bill. I, I, you know, I expect some people do it because they want to be seen to be an expert in something. Then they get something out of that as a measure of their of oh, success. Right. People like to have measures of success and some people's yeah. measures of success. And you see it for, you maybe some for billionaires now. It's just the fact that they I don't know. I'm not a billionaire and I never will be, but maybe they don't, <laughs> they don't earn money to, to, as a way of, so they can buy more stuff. It's a scoring system. Yeah. Yeah. They can measure their success against guess, another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, some people in, in research do it for publishing papers as a measure of their success, uh, a metric. I expect, you know, as humans are, is an element of, of metric. Yeah, we do it, you know, sport. You know, it's a measure of metric. Yeah. Is, is, that, is my team better than your team? Can I run faster than someone else? What's the utility of it? Well, the utility is it is a human competition in us, you know, survival of the fittest now, um, those sorts of things that drive us. I do, I do think that it's not a, a neutral process. Like, you know, the publishing and sharing and being, it's uncomfortable, right? Because you are being scrutinized. And so it's not trivial. I mean, I, one thing, I, do, I enjoy the process of working with people on papers. I really enjoy it within the topics in which I have something to contribute, you know, I'm not, uh, it's not just to let's solve a challenge. That's not that, that well, this, it's the challenge of it. It's not like a word or exercise to me. I want to do something that produces something of use, but it's uncomfortable. But publishing for me is uncomfortable because at the end of it, someone's going to read it and they might really disagree and they might find something that they can tell you and say, well, you should have done it this way. And then you think, oh, blimey, I should have done it that way. <laughs> they were, they're right. So it's not a trivial exercise. It's not, it's not a trivial thing in, of a marketing exercise for your own pursuit. I think it can be very tough. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, but I do agree with Mike in that, you know, that people have different motivations. I think the easiest one is just to, the adage of doing no harm is definitely a good starting place. Mm-hmm. I'm trying not trying to, and that, but that's non-trivial. I mean, because you don't know how your work's going to be used. You know, because yeah. most work can be flipped over and, and the phrasing can be used or in a different way or something. Yeah, I've seen that. Like I say, you don't know how it's, how it's going to be used. A lot of time you, you don't find out. 
again, it was useful. I mean, you can find out when people have, can go to your, your Google Scholar and see how many citations you've got and where your yeah, account. What you don't know is whether, unless you go read the paper, their citation, although most of them don't, might say the work by a spin point citation is a load of rubbish. You know, you don't, you don't get <laughs> it's, the, a <laughs> it's a citation. It's a citation. But you don't know where it gets used elsewhere. And, and I do remember at least one time when one of my students at Canterbury had done a, a thesis or something and, and it goes, we published those as PDFs. And then I got an email maybe a year later from a, from a consultancy company who said, oh, that's a really nice thesis it's been really useful it's nice just to get the sense that yeah. someone actually found it useful and I, I wouldn't have found out had i not got the email but someone took the time to at least sort of recognize that there was some value in that and you know it's kind of nice because it is scary it's scary publishing i agree with steve it's scary i'm scared because it, it will show how how incompetent i am at something i've made mistakes or whatever because you are we're all limited you know we're all limited by our capability to do something in other words you know, I can read a paper or read something and go, I just don't understand it because I'm just not clever enough. And there's only so many hours in the day to, to, you know, there's always that feeling of, I should have read more papers. I should have read, I should have dived into this more and dug into it, but you can't do it. And you always think, well, maybe I missed something. You know, maybe I've turned over all these stones, but I just didn't turn over the right one. And had I only spent another day and had I only spent a bit longer, I would have found something that would have, oh, wait a minute. Oh, that's really and someone else will send me an email and go, didn't you read the paper by so-and-so? And, and I'll go, no, I didn't. I just didn't know it was there. I didn't look. But that's so healthy, right? That, that doubt is healthy. Because if you don't have that doubt, then you can get into a lot of trouble because you, you think you've got the answer. And almost certainly you won't. A, there isn't a, an answer. And B, you probably haven't got it. <laughs> so if there was. But one, one thing, bringing it back to the industrial element, I think, which is goes to what Mike's saying there, which is you often don't know in a purely research setting where we, we, you know, and again, I don't think we operate in that realm. You really don't know what the impact of a piece of work might be. In a lot of the work that we do in industry, I think the horizon's nearer. So you have a chance of affecting something almost within the life cycle of a project, unless you're doing more traditional research from with, within industry, which we definitely do as well. But sometimes you see the positives and negatives of, of your work right in front of you. And that's a different sensation. You, you, you know, you answer that doubt that Mike's talking about there, which is what would the impact of your knowledge, what was the impact of your findings on this thing that's being built or this thing? I did some work years ago on the Statue of Liberty and it was very much that, you know, what, what, is it going to reopen or not? Is it going to, you know, you often, you often work on projects and there's, there's a modification to a building and you think, I hope that, that works. I hope that, that, you know, I hope that that bit of a research that we did in support of this engineering project was the best that we could have done. Okay, guys, uh, I, I need to stop you. There. I, I can imagine you can go for like another yes. five hours on that. This is every meeting with me and Mike. It has been super interesting conversation uh, with the experts who are researchers who claim to not do science, but they actually do science. Mike, you, you are doing science. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry you are. Guys, t thank you very much for, for this. I hope it was interesting uh, to, to, to people, to researchers. I, I hope it was interesting to the, to the society. I guess people are either going to hate or, or love this episode. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Well, ironically, we might may or never find out. Well, ironically, we might not. <laughs> That was awful, but maybe they send me, can send me an email that says, I, I listened to it and it was awful. At least I know it was awful then. Cause, cause okay, if you, yeah. if you found out this episode awful, please send an email to Mike. In other case, send it to me or Steve. I, think, <laughs> I, only, I only want to hear positives. I don't yeah, want to hear more Same here. <laughs> okay, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with me. And yeah, have a, have a great year 2023 because I assume it just started. Take care, bro. Thank you. Cheers. And that's it. Uh, thank you for listening. I hope we didn't bore you down with our amateur philosophy thinking uh, stuff. But I, I was very happy to be engaged in such a discussion with Mike and uh, Steve, who are industry legends. It was a pure pleasure to, to hear their thoughts about why we do research and how we do research and uh, how does one do research in academia, how one does do research in industry. Very intriguing. And I think the differences are much smaller than I've expected them to be. I don't think we found a single 
massive discrepancy in how would you run research uh, in, in one part or another. We didn't touch that much uh, utilitarian aspects of research uh, as in product development and all R&D um, research happening around, but maybe that's a subject for another discussion. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to this uh, podcast episode. I really hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks a lot to OFR for sponsoring uh, the show once again. Super happy to to have OFR as the diamond sponsor of the Fire Science Show and uh, the collaboration that's going to last for at least one year. Uh, that makes me very, very happy. And that would be it for today. It's not the end of the podcasting this week because there's an upcoming Q&A episode. I think it should air on Friday. If I miss it, it may be Monday, but I'll do anything I can to have it published on Friday. So you'll learn a lot about the listener experience survey and uh, my observations from that. And I will tell you what you are thinking about the podcast. So that's very exciting. And I will also share more details about the OFR collaboration and how it's going to affect the podcast and everything I'm doing in here. So uh, if you're interested in the podcast itself, uh, you're very welcome to join me. And if you're interested just in the great discussions with leaders of the industry. You're very welcome next Wednesday when I'm having Dr. Adam Barove from ULFSRI to talk about battery fires again. So cool. I'm really happy to do this subject again. And it was a great conversation. Cannot wait to, to publish that one. So thanks for being here with me. See you again on, on Friday, Monday or Wednesday. And yeah, have a good week. Cheers. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.